So let me <clears throat> let me give two caveats before I begin. Number one, so I'm a bit under the weather, uh, which actually worked out really well. I almost didn't come because I wasn't sure how the sickness thing was going to go. And then like half of university in Virginia prayed for me, and now I feel bad. <laughs> so thanks for that. I'm going to be contacting you with all my future sicknesses. Uh, but no, the reason I tell you that is because if I break out in coughs, I plan to do, it's like it's like an awkward dab that I'm going to do where I'll try to like cover the microphone and cough and my elbows simultaneously. So just be ready for that. Um, uh, but the other caveat I want to give um, is, is along the lines of uh, what Catherine said, um, which is that I'm going to be talking tonight out of, out of my own story. Um, and I hope there's some extrapolating uh, that you can do that's helpful for you, that's helpful for this community. Um, but what I don't want to do is tell a single story about how I've encountered Jesus in my own life and then be like, Every LGBTQ person that you ever meet will have exactly the same story, and Jesus will meet them in exactly the same way. Uh, because that is just patently false. Uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, she's a Nigerian novelist named Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. So great, so great. You should read, do yourself and humanity a favor and read some Adichie. Uh, but she says this about the single story. She says, the single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they're untrue, but that they're inaccurate, uh, that they're incomplete, uh, because they make one story become the only story. Uh, so, so my desire is not that the story that I tell tonight is the only story that you hear. Uh, instead, my hope is that it sparks some questions in your own mind about what discipleship with Jesus might look like. Um, and this is not just discipleship with Jesus. If you also happen to be somewhere in the not entirely 100% card-carrying straight camp, uh, I'm talking about discipleship with Jesus uh, for all of us, uh, not just in how our community is a space um, that welcomes sexual minorities, but also how each of us individually is called to encounter Jesus. Uh, and for some of you, uh, some of the straights in the room are like, well, he's going to say things about Jesus, but they'll be like the gay things about Jesus. So I don't know the direct application. Don't worry, I've thought of you in advance, and that's why I'll punctuate my talk with a few of what I like to call straight people application. <laughs> so, so when you're sitting there in the rest of the story, and you're like, yeah, he's talking about the gay things, he's talking about the gay things, you can just perk up for those straight people application points. Don't worry, they're, they're coming. Um, and really, really... So when I talk about straight people applications, this is a bit tongue-in-cheek because really, ultimately, the thing that I want to suggest to you this evening is that there's actually no such thing as straight people application points and gay people application points. That in fact, in the end, the gospel turns out to be the same gospel for all of us. Um, because I think in the end, when it comes to encountering Jesus, we're all fundamentally asking the same questions in our walk with him. And those questions are, is Jesus really who he says he is? Um, and if so, what is it going to cost me to follow him? What am I going to need to give up? Uh, and if I do give that up, is it going to be worth it? Uh, is Jesus who he says he is? What am I called to give up to follow him? And will it be worth it? Uh, and I think those questions apply to all of us, regardless of your sexuality, regardless of what you believe the Bible says about sexual ethics. Those are, I think, questions that are worthy for all of us to grapple with. So my own story, I'm going to start in puberty, which is a terrible time to start any story. Uh, at, least, at least it was for me. But I, I had this moment in puberty. See, here's what happened. Because I, I grew up in the church, uh, which means that I went to youth group. And what they would do in youth group as we were approaching puberty is like, 
uh, they'd start to split up the boys and the girls, and they'd send us into the separate rooms. And I distinctly remember, at this period of time, the girls were all freakishly tall, and they wore a lot of eyeshadow. <laughs> so the freakishly tall, eyeshadow-wearing girls would go off into one room, and, and, they, and they'd sequester the boys in the other room, and they'd sit us down, and they'd be like, look, we know what you're all going through. You want to look at pictures of naked women. Don't do it. And I was like, okay, got it. No <laughs> looking at pictures of naked women. And I discovered that I was remarkably good at not looking at women. I was so, so good at it. And so I, I started to think to myself, like, I've been told this is what every, every boy my age is going through, and I'm not. And I was like, I think I'm the holiest 11 year old. <laughs> And I was so pleased with my, I was like, oh, look at I'm like throwing out my shoulder, patting myself on the back, uh, feeling really clean. It, it took me a while because I was slow uh, to catch on that I in fact did have an experience of sexuality. It just wasn't the one that I had been trained by my Christian community to expect. Um, and so this launched a grand crisis in me of trying to figure out what to do with the sexuality that I was experiencing and how that fit in with the narratives that I was hearing from the church and from the world around me. Um, and so I sort of wrestled with two big options, um, the, the ex-gay narrative and the gay-affirming narrative. Uh, and I'll deal with them in order because that's how I dealt with them. So first there was, there was this ex-gay narrative. Um, the, the view that if you love Jesus enough, if you work through whatever things have gone wrong in your upbringing, um, if you pray sufficiently, then you will eventually become straight. Uh, this was the narrative that was prevalent, at least in the community that I was in growing up. Uh, and so that was the narrative that I tried to live into for a number of years. Essentially, I tried to measure the success or failure of my spiritual life based on how straight I felt at any given time. Uh, which turns out to be a remarkably bad idea. For instance, and this, by the way, this is not like a recommendation. This is like a don't try this at home kids kind of thing. But cut me a break because I was 13. Uh, I found this picture of like a scantily clad woman. And I was like, they tell me I'm supposed to be able to lust after this picture. And I was like, yeah, I think we can do it. So I took the picture and I was like. <laughs> <laughs> And for all the good it did, I might as well have been staring at like an office supplies place. <laughs> but, but I tried, and, and what I found was that the more I told myself, like, the more you love Jesus, the, the straighter you'll be, um, I just began to feel more and more, I think I'm falling more deeply in love with Jesus, and I don't seem to be any less gay than before. Um, so this went on through middle school, through high school, through college. Um, and after a series of increasingly clear no's from the Lord, uh, a dating relationship that did not go the direction I thought it would, um, uh, opportunities that God just seemed to keep closing, uh, I began to wonder what would happen if I stayed gay. Was it possible for me to continue on in love with Jesus, in obedience to Jesus, without becoming straight? Uh, and that question then launched me into the second narrative I was I had heard of, which was the, the gay-affirming narrative. And this was the view um, that the Bible has been misunderstood on the question of sexual ethics, um, and that there actually is uh, an, an option for folks who follow Jesus uh, to pursue a, a loving, monogamous, same-sex marriage. Um, so, 
You know, growing up, I had been told that that was a very simple question with a very simple answer. That you just sort of flip open the Bible in your English translation, you find where it says homosexual in there somewhere in English, you point to it, and you're like, you see, case closed. And then you move on to something more important, like the Calvinist Armenian debate. You know, you, you, find, you find something that's much more complicated. Uh, this is what I had been told. Uh, and. And I, I reached a place where I realized I can't just let somebody else tell me that. I actually need to investigate this uh, for myself. Um, and side note on investigating the Bible. Um, it is a noble impulse when we have questions to take the risk of actually going back to the Bible and say, does this thing say the thing that I've been told that it says? Um, that, that's not a bad thing that we should be ashamed of to go to the Bible and say, I really want to know what's in here. I don't just want to take somebody else's word for it. Um, that, in fact, we're called to love what's in the Scripture more than we love our own traditions and our assumptions about what's in there. And for those of you keeping score, that was straight people application, number one. See how that happened? It just slide it right in there. Um, it's, it's appropriate for us to be more excited about what is in the Bible than about the things we've been told about it. The Bible needs to have the power to prove us wrong. And at the same time, the Bible, if we really trust it, if we really believe that it's authoritative for our lives, it also needs to have the power to tell us the things that we don't want to hear. So, so I approached the Bible again with that spirit. And I said, I just want to know what's in here. And I actually want to know. I actually want to dig into the complexities of it. And here's what I found. I'm not, I'm not going to go into this in great detail, but I'm happy to talk with you about it later. We can get all geeky about the Greek. Oh, my Greek geek game is strong. So let's do that later outside. Uh, but, but for this evening, let me just give you my conclusions in brief as I did this delving in. Uh, number one, I realized in my investigation that the thing that I thought of as being straight, um, exclusively experiencing sexual attraction for the opposite sex, is not actually a biblical guarantee. Um, and if you think it is, check again, because I promise you I looked really hard for it. Um, being straight is not a biblical guarantee. Neither is getting married. Neither is having sex. Uh, all of these things that both of the narratives I was familiar with had told me was somehow or another, you're going to get married, you're going to have the sex, um, Somehow, we're not sure if, it's, if you're going to be straight or not, but somehow you have to do these things. Um, these are not biblical guarantees. The second thing I found, uh, on the question of sexual ethics, I found that it was complicated. Um, I found that the people who told me, oh, it's super simple, you just flip it open, you read these three verses in English, boom, case, case closed. Um, did a disservice to the complexity of the conversation. And I get on a very visceral and personal level uh, why some people reach a progressive view on the question of sexual ethics. Um, but, number three, I also concluded that there's still a best answer in the scripture. That it can be complicated and there can be a lot of factors weighing in. Um, but I'm, I guess, old school enough in my reading practice to think that when we approach a text like the Bible, we're called to actually ask what the authors are trying to communicate to us. I do think there's a best answer that the Bible is trying to communicate on the question of sexual ethics. Uh, and the conviction that I've come to um, is that that calls somebody in my shoes to say no to same-sex sexual expression. And I reached that conviction Without much excitement. I, like, I wasn't stoked when I got there. I wasn't like, woo-hoo, nailed it. Um, it was pretty depressing.
depressing. In fact, because I, I got super peeved with God, and I was like, why would you allow such a thing to happen? Because this just seems supremely unfair. And I want to read for you an excerpt from my book where I talk about this question. Uh, and it goes like this. Obedience was supposed to be costly. When Jesus told his followers to take up their crosses and follow him, he wasn't just calling them to place heftier checks in the offering plate or to put up with the occasional irritation at work. He was calling them to blood and sorrow and unspeakable agony. He was calling them to death. In many parts of the world, this calling to death is still very much a literal one for those who declare their allegiance to Christ. And if not death, perhaps the risk of beatings, of deprivation, of complete ostracization from family and community. But in the Western world, lulled by freedom of religion and unprecedented opulence, we begin to lose sight of what words like suffering really mean. It's easy to believe that ease and safety are the baseline experiences of humanity, the natural states of being from which any other state diverges. And suffering, when it comes, feels like a violation. Suffering shocks us. I'll follow you, we say to Christ so readily, watching the thorns dig into his forehead. And then, moments later, we cry foul when we discover thorns of our own. Maybe the problem isn't that gay Christians have received an impossible task. Maybe the problem is that so many straight Christians have given themselves a task that is too easy, a cross too bearable. While gay Christians, it seems, are expected to deny themselves and their desires for sex and family and intimacy, desires that feel so intrinsically part of their being. Some straight Christians will simply channel those desires toward a single man or woman, get married, have kids, join a country club, attend a welcoming church where everything has been designed with people like them in mind, and chase the Jesus festooned brand of the American dream. And now, I don't mean to belittle the self-denial necessary to a God-honoring, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Remaining faithful to a single partner is no small feat, or so I'm told. And certainly, some straight Christians who desire marriage may yet find themselves called to celibacy. Regardless of orientation, regardless of marital status, Christ's invitation to the cross remains no less true and no less necessary. But the road of celibacy for the gay Christian remains a distinctly complex calling to not only resist sexual urges, but to try to banish the thought of ever fulfilling them to have no daydreams of a future romance, no wistful marriage plans, to feel like the very core of your sexual desire and the faith that you hold most dear are at odds with each other. There are sufferings far worse than this, but there is none quite the same. My heart has its own fracture lines, its own unique ways of breaking. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe the calling to gay Christian celibacy stands in 21st century America as a precious reminder of just how desperately, helplessly devoted we were meant to be to the cross of Christ. A reminder that every sacrifice we make will pale in comparison to the sacrifice made on our behalf. Maybe the problem isn't that faith costs some of us too much, but that it costs all of us too little.
And for those of you keeping score, this is straight people application point number two. Which is that if following Jesus doesn't cost you something, then you might need to rethink whether it's really Jesus that you're following. Which is not to say that you should all be celibate, certainly, because some of you got to be fruitful and multiply. Um, <laughs> but, but it is to say, it is to say, that if somebody who doesn't know Jesus can look at every aspect of your life, if they can look at the ways that you invest your time and the ways that you invest your money and the risks that you take and the risks that you don't and the dreams that you dream and the ways that you love others, if somebody who doesn't know Jesus can look at all of those things and make perfect sense of them and be like, yeah, very sensible choices, then it might be that Jesus doesn't actually have as much lordship over your life as you think he does. And if this all sounds super depressing, like following Jesus is all about like finding the things that you want and then not doing them, um, I want to end uh, in in the in the in the depressing mode in my own story. Uh, and in fact, uh, if uh, people who know me know that I tend to use the word delightful a lot, um, I, just, I just think the world is full of delightful things. And uh, and I'm so well known for using the word delightful that this one time a couple of years ago I set up a meeting with the with the pastor of my church and when he put it in his calendar he didn't write my name he just wrote delightful meeting um, and then his secretary looked at his calendar later and was like oh I see your meeting with Greg <laughs> so like so, so people so people know it's a thing um, and in that in that delightful meeting. Uh, with, with my pastor, uh, I came out to him for the first time. And, and I kind of told him more or less the story I just told you. And, and he said at the end, he looked at me and he said, you're, you're saying all of this with a smile, which makes sense because you're you know, delightful. Uh, and he said, I'm wondering, are you really as happy as you seem? Or are you just kind of good at letting people see what you think they need? to see. Um, and, and the thing that I told him, I said, I'm, I'm happy, and it's a very complicated kind of happy. Uh, but in fact, I think that very complicated kind of happy is so much better than the like nice and simple, tidy happy that I would have dreamed up for myself. Um, because there's something robust and real about a happiness that faces the complexities of obedience to Jesus and launches headlong into them. One of my favorite moments in Scripture uh, is so good that it happens three times. It's in all the Synoptic Gospels. It's in Matthew, and it's in Mark, and then it's in Luke. Uh, and it's this moment where, uh, where Peter, who's always the loudmouth of the disciples, so if, if, if anybody's thinking it, Peter's saying it. Uh, Peter, Peter goes to Jesus, because Jesus has just talked about all these things that all these difficult things his followers are called to do. And, and so Peter goes to Jesus afterward, and he's like, uh, Jesus, just, just want to remind you, we gave up everything to follow you. Um, and uh, and I, in some of those Gospels, he follows that up by saying, like, what then will there be for us? Like, we gave up all the things, so now we've got nothing. And, uh, and I, I, love, I love Jesus' Jesus' response to Peter. Uh, he says this, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. <laughs>
Notice here that Jesus does not deny that there is difficulty in following him. When Peter's like, we gave things up, Jesus does not say like, eh, shut up, you idiot, you didn't give up a thing. Right? Like, Jesus acknowledges there is, there is real loss, there is real sacrifice um, in the things that his followers have given up. But what he promises is even better things, even more than the things you can dream up for yourself. Not just in heaven. It's not just like, well, suck it up, then life's going to suck, but then you go to heaven, and it'll be great. Uh, not just in, in the age to come, Jesus says, but in this present life. Um, and that, I think, is the gamble for those of us who follow Jesus. Right? If we've asked the question, is, is Jesus really who he says he is? And if we find him inescapable, and if we then say, what is it going to cost me to follow him? And the answer that we hear is something that feels incredibly costly. Then we have to answer this last question. Is it going to be worth it? If I actually follow Jesus in these absurd ways that he seems to be calling me to, is it going to be worth it? Um, and if we, if we take Jesus seriously on everything else, then I would suggest to you this evening that we might as well take him seriously on this too. Uh, that he actually means it when he says that the things we give up are nothing in comparison to the things that we gain as we follow him. That in fact the times we flourish best are the times that we take our eyes off of ourselves and place them onto him. Um, and this of course is straight people application number three. Uh, because gay people, goodness knows, are not the only people who need to be reminded that real flourishing comes from Jesus and not always in the places that we expect it. So I want to I want to take the last bit of time that we have this evening. I don't know how much time do we have? Give me a ten minutes. Uh, with the with the tail end of our time together. Um, so we'll kind of wrap up the the story portion of the of the evening for now. Uh, but I want to take this last little bit of time uh, to think about what it might look like uh, for for Christian communities like this one to become good spaces uh, for uh, loving LGBTQ folks, spaces in which LGBTQ people can belong. Um, and and there, were, there were so many aspects here, uh, and, and this is not going to be an exhaustive list by any means. Um, I'm even going to, going to focus in a little bit further, because we could ask the question, um, what does this look like for LGBTQ folks uh, who, who are not followers of Jesus, and we can also ask, what does this mean for our interactions? Uh, if, if we hold a traditional sexual ethic like mine, uh, uh, what does it mean for our interactions with folks who have a different sexual ethic than us? Um, and we also can ask the question, what does it look like to love LGBTQ people who are committed to uh, this, this weird uh, traditional sexual ethic that, that, uh, that is going to cost them either celibacy um, or perhaps uh, uh, perhaps the Lord will open up opportunities for uh, an opposite sex relationship, but there are all kinds of reasons to be cautious about that. We can talk about it later. Um, actually, no, we're going to talk about it right now. Um, because, because we got nine minutes left, uh, and Connor says I have unlimited time. So that's a good Now, here's the thing. So when I talk about being gay, and people are like, so are you saying that the Lord can't change you? Uh, number one, okay, no, that's not what I'm saying. Because Jesus can do as he jolly well pleases, right? Like, Jesus is off, like, turning water into wine. If Jesus wants, he can, like, transform the whole cast of Hamilton into, like, a bunch of giant ferrets or something. You know, like, Jesus can do all the transformation. 
brainstorming things that Jesus wants to do. You know what I'm saying? But here's the thing. We also, if, if we want to be wise people who sees how Jesus commonly works in the world, um, it would be wise for us to observe uh, that after years and years of the church being like, orientation change is the thing. This is the way that God will meet you, we promise. Uh, the result has been that the vast majority of those promises did not turn out to be true. Um, and that's not to invalidate the stories of people who have experienced some change in their experience of sexual orientation. Sexual fluidity is a thing. There's research on it, and I don't want to deny it. Um, but uh, there's, there's reason for us to, to be cautious in the promises that we make, especially to be cautious uh, in promising that God will work in ways that he doesn't seem to often work. Um, I have a number of friends who are in what they would call mixed orientation marriages. Um, and this means uh, that these are friends of mine who are, in general, uh, oriented exclusively toward the same sex. Uh, and yet, they found a person of the opposite sex who, uh, who they fell in love with. Uh, and the Lord said, you should marry him. And so they did. Um, and, and some of those friends will describe to me, like some of my gay male friends who are married to women will say, I have a one-woman orientation, right? Which is to say, like, she's the only woman I've ever, uh, and she's the only one I can met. And, uh, and when, those, when those men are in those marriages and they're thinking about what it looks like to steward their sexuality within that marriage, uh, the, the other relationships, the other desires that they're choosing to say no to are still same-sex sexual desires. So these are not men who have become straight, per se, um, but these are men who God has called into marriage. Um, and I don't know why, because God does lots of weird things, and who am I uh, to say what he should or should not do? Um, but there are so many people, uh, especially in the wake of the ex-gay movement, so many people who have been sort of thrust into marriage because that was the only hopeful vocation that they were given. The only way you can belong in this Christian community is if you be fruitful and multiply. Um, people who have rushed into marriage hoping that this will fix them in some way. Um, and in so many cases, it has not, and it has resulted in broken families, it has resulted in heartache, and it has resulted in people leaving the gospel um, instead of meeting Jesus within it. So, so when we think when we think about loving LGBTQ people in our midst, uh, one of the things that this means is that I think we need to open up our imaginations about the possible hopeful vocations that God might call our brothers and sisters into. Um, right? That the only hopeful vocation for them is not marriage. That singleness is actually a viable thing. Who knew? Um, you know what I've never heard read at a wedding? Uh, I've never heard anybody read 1 Corinthians 7 at a wedding. Because here's what happens in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me give you a little synopsis. This is the Greg Cole's version. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul is like, so the, the single man, he's concerned with the things of God. Um, and Paul says, you know, but the married man, He's concerned with the things of the world and pleasing his wife, and so his interests are divided. Uh, and so Paul goes on a little later and he says, So then, he who marries, yeah, he does, he does fine, he does okay. But he who does not marry does better. <laughs> right? Like, like, read that at your marriage ceremony. <laughs> and now, now, the point here, we should, we should be clear again, the point here is not, not that the Bible's like down and out on marriage. No, au contraire. The Bible has all sorts of all sorts of claims about 
what a beautiful and wonderful vocation marriage is within which people can be obedient to Jesus, within which they can find family and belonging. Um, and I think it's great that our churches celebrate that. I just think it would be great if we also began to celebrate more that singleness is also a beautiful vocation within which people can find family and belonging within which they can be truly fulfilled and obedient to Jesus. Um, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a terrific book that I'm going to plug for you. It's an university press book, so this is like right in your wheelhouse. Um, there's a book called Breaking the Marriage Idol by Cutter Calloway. Uh, and uh, he, makes, he makes a wonderful observation about marriage that I want to read for you. But before I do, I want to remind you again about that thing that we, that we heard in Matthew and Mark and Luke about Jesus saying, you're going to give up the family things and you'll get them back a hundredfold. You know, sometimes I think we read that passage and we imagine that we give things up and then we sort of abstractly from somewhere who knows who just get like happy feelings back. Um, I don't think this is the best way for us to read these passages. What I think Jesus is in fact promising when he says you'll be restored with so much more family than what you've lost. He's promising the body of Christ to us. He's saying you will find family in one another. And it would be so much better than that thing that you had when it was just you and your spouse and your 2.1 children gunning it on your own. Um, the, the, the thing that we're called to, the, the big family that we're called to is the body of Christ. Now what this means is that when we read Jesus' promise, when, when I read Jesus' promise and it says to me, you're going to give some things up and what you get is going to be so much better. I can't do that. That promise will not be true in my life unless the rest of the church steps up their game and becomes the family that I've been promised. Um, so that is part of our calling. If we want to be Christian spaces in which LGBTQ people who are single uh, can belong, part of what we need to do is, is be that kind of family. Um, this means, I think, revamping our image of singleness. It also means revamping our image of marriage. And this is why I'm going to read from Cutter Calloway, because he's married, so he's allowed to say things about marriage that I am not, because I'm like sworn off of giving marriage advice. Uh, <laughs> this, is what, this is what Calloway says about marriage. He says, the call to marriage is not about our personal comfort or pleasure. It isn't meant to make us happy. Neither is it about the creation of an exclusively nuclear family, a household closed off to the rest of the world. It is, rather, a dive into the deep end of hospitality. It is to swing open the doors of our lives and our homes to the community on whom we are profoundly dependent, whether we realize it or not. Um, community is not found in finding the people who are on the outs and making them into special projects and being like, every other Tuesday, I'll get coffee with you. Um, it, it's, it's about actually reordering the shape of our lives such that the people around us become our family. Um, and in fact, it's about a thing that I did much better in college uh, than since I've left. Because the beautiful thing about college is your lives blend together. It's beautiful. Don't lose it when you graduate. I mean, lose some things about college when you graduate, please. Uh, but, but don't lose the enmeshment of community. Don't lose that kind of closeness. Um, let me say this, because, because there's time. Nana's not going to cut me off yet. I'm going to close with this thought. Um, 
I'm sorry I'm invoking you so much. <laughs> if it's making you uncomfortable, I sincerely apologize. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me close with, with this thought um, about, about our communities. Such an important part of belonging with one another uh, is the opportunity to be known by one another. Um, and I've been in a lot of Christian communities that whether they need to or not, the thing that they do is they sort of tacitly incentivize the closet. Uh, by which I mean they make it easier for the queer people in their midst to not talk about their experience of sexuality. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a couple ways that this happens. Uh, one is by heightening suspicion of people after they come out, by suddenly feeling like, well, you know, before, before we were just discipling Catherine, and now, like, is anybody discipling Catherine? Because, like, the queer thing, you know? Um, it's, it's like people, people become projects for us in a way that they were not prior to their coming out. Um, and we make them wish that they had stayed in the closet. Or perhaps, God forbid, they come out and they articulate a sexual ethic that is different than our own. Um, and all of a sudden we're like, oh man, this person is my project. And we get into like holy pestering mode, right? Where you're like, every time you see him, you're like, what a pleasure to see you. Have you read Moments 1 recently? <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> right in there. Uh, let me suggest that these practices that maybe you do with the best of intentions, um, and maybe not you, some people do them with the best of intentions, uh, what they do is they create a space in which people are incentivized to never talk about their experience of sexuality. Um, folks, the closet is not a conducive space for people's spiritual growth. Uh, and if our Christian communities are ones in which people are encouraged to be silent about the places in which they're really wrestling with God, the things that they most need to work through. Um, that our Christian spaces are not reflecting biblical obedience. Our Christian spaces are just reflecting some residual homophobia. So I would urge us to be a place where people are welcomed to be honest, um, where we are all pointing one another back to Jesus. There's so much more that could be said. But I will not say it. I trust that you will open up space for yourselves to say it to one another. Thanks for having me. It's